0: Welcome to Episode 1 of Mainly History. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. Baseball, America's Pastime is an old game. If you want to learn about its origins, Google it. But did you know that there is a small, yet growing number of people who are getting together to play by the old rules with the old equipment? That's right, vintage baseball. But why? Is this like a renaissance fair, but for sports? Are these Civil War reenactors actors who just wanted to throw the ball around? Who are these people, and what's the relationship to the wide world of history hobbyists, public historians, and people who just like to do weird stuff for fun? In our inaugural episode, Jacob Newcomb, captain of Deergo Vintage Baseball Club, throws out the first pitch as he joins me for the first interview of Mainly History. Let's do this. With us today, we have Jake Newcomb, the captain of the Dirigo Vintage Baseball Club. Jake, welcome to Mainly History. Thank you, happy to be here. This is such a thrill for me, I have to say. I stumbled on a vintage baseball game. I didn't know it existed until I was at Fort Williams Park in June of 2012. And some high school friends were, were visiting for our annual summer gathering. And here we go, stumbling on this amazing looking gathering of men dressed extremely Natalie, a little bit like the cast of Newsies. And the umpire is this magnificent gentleman in a full suit. And he's got a, a pocket watch and a majestic beard. And he called himself Graybeard. And here he is serving as the umpire for this game, this antiquated baseball game, uh, which ended up being a good game to watch as well and that was my first introduction to the the hobby of vintage baseball. And so I am very pleased to have you with us on the show today. Jake, I got to start by asking, why not just play normal, modern baseball or softball? Like why do you dress up in really vintage clothes and play outdated,
1: old-timey baseball? I, I think that's a great question. And I You know, the easy answer for me for that is I don't like softball. (laughs) I'm not, not, I don't even think I'm, I don't even think I'm very good at it hitting that ball that way and so on. But no, the real reason for me is, is just the start of it all. I was asked to play and I thought it looked cool. There aren't a lot of opportunities for adults to play baseball. Uh, This is the closest thing that you can, that you can get in a very accessible way. And yeah, I'm just really, pumped to be able to do it i've, I've I, like i've been doing it since 2006 and here it is 2020 so gosh i guess this is like if we get a game in this is my 15th year of playing and wow i don't foresee stopping anytime soon it's just such a great game people of almost all ages can play and uh yeah i guess vintage baseball is just a way for for people who still want to play the game to get out there without having to be in a high cost you know high intensity league And really just play for the love of the game. Wow,
0: okay. Now, I should say, many people would want to know that. I, it did not occur to me at first to ask this question because I am weird. Because my default answer to why would you play old baseball instead of new baseball is because old things are cool. What kind of stupid question is that? But
1: I mean, I I think that definitely,
0: many people don't think that way.
1: I think there is, you know, the oddity of it. And I think that is attractive to a lot of people. So Sure.
0: Oh, well, the clothes are awesome. Let's be real. Come on.
1: Yeah, the um, uniforms are really cool.
0: They are. They are. Okay. What is vintage baseball? And why did you pick the mid-19th century as the model for this sport as opposed to some other era in the game's
1: history? Vintage baseball, from my understanding, and I, I'm someone who's played this type of baseball since 2006. Is a way of playing baseball by rules ranging really from 1860 until uh, around 1902. Is the uh, we have a team out of New York that plays 1902 rules. Our team, the Diago Baseball Club, plays 1864 rules baseball mostly because that's what most other teams uh, in our area play is by those 1860s rules.
0: Do you know, why did the, the Vintage Baseball Association choose the 1860s rules as a as a point in time that, that made it worth sort of recapturing?
1: Well, you know, I can't speak for the guys that started doing this back in the 1970s and 80s, which, which was really the first time that people were playing by those rules since people played by those rules in the 1860s. Right. But it is a more how do I say, approachable, maybe uh, user-friendly version of the game. Pitching is underhanded. You can catch the ball on one bounce for an out. So if you're going to play barehanded, which people did in those days, the 1864 rules are really kind of a cool standard by which to use. It's very user-friendly.
0: Okay, makes sense. So a basic uh, primer for those of us who might not know our baseball history When did the sport that became recognizable as baseball take shape in the United States or elsewhere in the world?
1: Well, you know, I think that it's really hard to pinpoint a specific year or even era that uh, the game that we know really took shape. But I will say we in, in recent years, maybe in the last decade or so, there's been a lot more. Uh, information come forward for the average uh, vintage baseball player and really the average fan of baseball in general pointing at you know the 1850s as a time when some of our rules that are more recognizable today uh, were becoming more standardized like nine players to a side or playing nine innings of baseball or playing on 90 foot base paths guy named doc adams started to standardize a lot of these rules along with other people in the uh, New York city region. And uh, yeah, you know, I think that going into the 1860s with the civil war, uh, the game started becoming more popularized nationally.
0: And would you say was the New York area, the the nexus of this emergence of baseball that we recognize?
1: You know, I, I was, I've just been reading some different ideas about that And one of the historians that I follow had made a point that, you know, there was a a rule change suggested out of Chicago in the 1870s that basically, if you were in New York, you would understand that the rule change recommended in Chicago uh, was something that the New York Rules Committee had basically already thought of and taken care of in the 1860s. So yeah, it seems like Well, we in Chicago, we were putting our
0: fire out. So like we were busy. (laughs) You were Uh, thinking about other things. I was born in Chicago. We had a lot on our mind.
1: And so. uh, But that's representative of, you know, how maybe people outside of the New York or the Mid-Atlantic or even New England region weren't maybe uh, following as closely the rule changes or the, the evolution of the game. But they certainly saw the rules as they came about. They just, you know maybe the the history of the game hadn't quite reached them yet. So it's just an interesting evolution that really, like you said, kind of evolved mostly in the New York area. And this is from the earlier sports of, I
0: think, town ball, right?
1: Yeah, we had uh, the, the Massachusetts game, as it's referred to as. Okay.
0: For the audience members who have never been to a vintage baseball game, poor souls, what are the major rule and equipment differences between, say, the 1860s and a 21st century game?
1: The first thing you're going to notice if you go to an 1860s game is either that the players aren't wearing gloves or that the pitcher is pitching underhanded. Everything else that you're going to notice as a difference is more nuanced, and maybe uh, the average baseball fan wouldn't really keep track of, uh, or I should say maybe someone who's not much of a baseball fan wouldn't really notice the difference in. So the first thing you're going to notice again is, is that players aren't wearing gloves and you might say, Oh my goodness, that that's going to lead to broken fingers. And it does. And then uh, the, the pitching is underhanded because obviously in baseball, pitching is overhand. That's the rule now. Right. Okay.
0: So the vintage baseball association itself was officially founded in 1996. And that struck me as as relevant cuz arguably the 90s are this this boom decade for American living historians mm-hmm. when we factor in Civil War reenactors, pioneer days, the the you know greater rise in renaissance fair. And so did the Vintage Baseball Association benefit from the post Ken Burns Civil War documentary and the movie Glory, and the sort of early 90s Civil War enthusiasm boom? Did that think, shape the
1: hobby at all? I think, you know, again, I'm, I'm only, uh, I'm going to be 35 in September. And I've only been playing since 2006. I think that it's, it's probable, though, if you look at that era, I know for a fact that Civil War reenacting went through a huge boom, like you said, with the movie Glory or the movie Gettysburg, they had to use a lot of reenactors for those films. Ken Burns, Civil War came out. Ken Burns Baseball came out at that time. That is a uh, good know, point. These, these, are big, these are big blockbuster documentaries for us historians. I'm a history teacher myself, so I, we, we rely on those documentaries in our studies. But anyway, it certainly uh, had to have expanded the popularity. And yeah, I mean, in the mid, or I should say the early 2000s, vintage baseball really started expanding a lot across the country.
0: What is the relationship between the Vintage Baseball and these other living history organizations? Or well, I'll,
1: I'll just speak for Deerigo, just right. for, for the sake of context. Dirigo was born out of the 3rd Maine Regiment reenactors, out of Augusta. A guy named Mark Roman was part of that 3rd Maine Regiment. He's now doing more Revolutionary War or pre-Revolutionary War era reenacting. Okay. Uh, they, they just did a, an encampment at Fort Pemaquid here in the state. Uh, in any event, he he was interested in researching some local baseball history in Augusta, and he found the Diego Baseball Club, which I believe started playing in 1866. So we're not entirely accurate with our portrayal. Go figure. But um, he uh, – he, uh, yeah, and right – I mean, that's pretty typical of reenactors, right? They're going well, to miss – Well, so I point. have a follow-up
0: question there. Yeah. So I am – I'm a former reenactor. The last couple of years of high school, I was in the 36th Illinois reenacting organization out in Fox River Valley in Illinois. I became acquainted with that entire experience. And among Civil War reenactors, there's these different schools of thought about how important accuracy is. And there's nothing worse than being a FARB and being modern, right? An- anachronistic. Right, yeah. And there are different schools of reenactors who, some of them are very much in it for the public education. Some of it are very much in it sort of for their own reasons where they they seem to really like to try and relive this early era quite honestly, that was the lack of emphasis on public education is is why I stepped away after I, I went away to college. Do you see similar constellations of thought within vintage baseball in terms of concerns of accuracy, Versus public education or, or some other interest?
1: I could tell you right now, I'm a public administrator for the 19th, the 19th century historical accuracy vintage, or b- baseball page. And people get into arguments around the, the smallest details of accuracy. And the arguments will go on for days we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of opinions about how things should be in baseball. And this is baseball. This isn't even civil war reenacting. I think civil war <laughs> reenactors take it to the next level in baseball. You really have a, a, a clear split between those who are there to play the game and those who are there to recreate history. And <laughs> the spectrum of interest and in historical accuracy is a wide one. I can tell you that. Okay,
0: so I know you're not going to speak for every single member of Dirigo, but would you say in general, do the, the team members tend to see themselves primarily as athletes competing in a game, or as as public historians or educators, or as something
1: else? Well, Ian, if we're going to be on mainly history, I might as well say, as Maine goes, so goes the nation. Indeed, and Dirigo baseball club represents that broad spectrum of interest and historical accuracy we have you know 25 or so members players who play over the years and they they vary greatly from people who are very interested in being as accurate as possible both in the rules and in how we present ourselves to the public and then we have guys that really just don't care and they're they're out there to uh, play baseball and it's just another avenue, or, or, uh, yeah, another avenue to play the sport. So if they're if they're getting tired of their men's softball team, they'll just come over and play vintage baseball because they love the game.
0: Well, that's another question. Are most Deergo members former, pretty serious athletes in more modern forms of baseball or softball, or does this something that uh, more of a game that attracts folks who maybe were from the living historian communities
1: and then they thought, oh, great, I'll get to play this game as well. I'll say. That and actually, I can speak more to the broader sense. Well, it's, as far as like teams on the East Coast, because that's who we generally see ourselves playing the most. We are uh, mostly good athletes. It's it's ironic. I mean, I sit here as someone who maybe in his mid thirties isn't as athletic as he once was, but I would say that you you want to uh, you want to have a team of athletes because you know that you're going to be facing other teams of athletes, and no one wants to go out and get even if it's vintage baseball, you don't want to go out and get beat 20 to nothing every game. It's going to get tiring. So yeah, we, we try to get good athletes that are also interested in history. And I think Diego has done that since day one. Okay.
0: Now you spoke of accuracy. And so I'm wondering how has the vintage baseball business, such as you were as the the sort of cottage industry evolved since its formative years speaking as a, again, as I know on the, the reenacting side there was a real mushrooming of they called them sutlers selling all these 19th century style clothes and supplies and everything that would pop up at all these events has there been changes in in better quality or more accurate uniforms or equipment is there a growing sophistication in the reproduction market for for vintage baseball
1: Absolutely. And I think much like any other, probably I would assume for any other type of reenacting, there's a lot of unlearning that's had to happen, right? I mean, you get stuck in these modes of, well, this was how they said things back then. And this was how they wore things back then. And if enough teams say that's what happened, then at some point it just becomes understood that this is what happened. Deer ago as a club went through a national embarrassment. And I say that because we were actually featured on CBS Evening News. Uh, we had a an interview with I think his name was like Ch- Chip Reed or something from That's CBS. Totally a newscaster
0: name. You've you've got you've got it. Yeah. Definitely Chip.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we uh, we spouted off a bunch of stuff that just has been proven to be inaccurate. And our uniforms were inaccurate. And the team that we played had some inaccuracies. And it was it was like uh, it was super cool it was great it was great to be on tv but it also opened ourselves up to a lot of criticism from people around the country and and so we we have decided to i guess you could say get on the right side of history we've really worked hard since then to really pursue uniforms that are more accurate we've worked hard to pursue baseball bats that are more accurate baseballs that are more accurate the things that we're saying more accurate we changed our hats we changed our pants we changed this and that and we made sure to black out all of our shoes. And we've just been working really hard to be as accurate as possible, or at least present as accurately as possible. Okay.
0: For those who are inaccurate, is the insult farb thrown around in the vintage baseball community? That
1: that is not part of our vernacular. I'm
0: sorry. (laughs) Do you have your own vernacular for the anachronistic ball club?
1: Oh my goodness. I don't think so because it's so, it's so common. You know, I mean, it's almost like those trying to be accurate are part of a uh, smaller contingent than those who are not really worried about accuracy. Okay.
0: Are most vintage baseball games, are they often performed at other living history events at, at, you know, sort of county festivals or, or other sort of, you know, pioneer days or living history events or are most club events games unto themselves?
1: Well, it's it's a healthy mix. We will have historical societies reach out and ask us to put together games. Not as much, the, actually, not at all this summer because it's just been such a mess. But alas, um, right. <laughs> we have festivals reach out. We used to play at the New Gloucester Days. We will go and play. We played uh, against a team in Massachusetts for I think Wayland, Massachusetts, 300th anniversary or something like that. And then we do just put together games, sort of ad hoc between our own team and another team. So it it varies greatly, but we do try to do as much historical outreach as possible.
0: Excellent. Thinking about some of these other teams in the league, how many teams are in your league that the Deergo plays in a given season? Assuming it's not a depressing year like this.
1: Right. We're not in a league per se. Uh, We play, you know, we have a team, we have a group of maybe five or six teams that we play regularly that are also just independent teams from other States like Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, Rhode Island Uh, used to be a team in New Hampshire. There's one other team in Maine. So we'll uh, we'll play those teams from time to time. And then uh, Massachusetts actually does have a league, the Essex baseball organization. They have four teams that play pretty much just themselves. And so there's, there's different leagues around, but most teams are just independent Many
0: Americans don't know that the the professional baseball leagues didn't officially segregate until the the very late nineteenth century, and that baseball in the nineteenth century was in in various locales considerably more integrated than it was before before right. 1900. And so has this been uh, has this been reflected? Have you seen when you're competing? Civil War reenacting is an overwhelmingly white hobby. I think that's for obvious reasons, can, and considering the whole slave-holding elephant in the room of all the Confederate units, and there were another reason why I left. Uh, but for for vintage baseball, has the participation reflected a sort of the broader makeup of of, of New England people?
1: S- simply said, I'll just say yes. There are black players. There are players from other minority communities in the country that play. In you know, we live in a a whiter part of the country, so that's a reality that we have to face and deal with, but we're always open to any, any players that come along.
0: And my, my point was largely that uh, I've seen reenactor units that were open anyway, yep. and I, I figured as much though that some audience members might be surprised by that information and there might be accusations that having non-white baseball players is somehow not accurate for a mid 19th century organization. And of
1: course, they'd be incorrect, as you've pointed out. <laughs>
0: yes, absolutely. Well, so other 19th century roots that I have to say that I'm that I'm proud of that people don't know. So I'm a proud Vassar College alum. Absolutely. And so I have to say, go Resolutes. The Vassar College Resolutes were a women's baseball club at Vassar College in the late 19th century, and they, they remained competitive for a number of years but by, the, by 1900 or so, social pressure had led to the, the closing of women's baseball at Vassar. But So I looked, and there are ladies vintage baseball clubs that are emerging in different parts of the country. So do you know, is anybody starting a ladies vintage baseball club in Maine or New England to play alongside the Ohio Village Muffins and Diamonds, which I love that name, and the World War II Girls Baseball Living History League?
1: First of all, I want to say it's so admirable and such a wonderful thing. When I found out about those teams, I thought that was such, such a great thing that there's so much interest to do that. I wish there was more interest for that here in Maine and New England in general. We have not seen a women's team form, but we are always uh, welcoming um, women to play on our teams. There's a few women who play in the Essex baseball organization, the New York mutuals out of, uh, Uh, Long Island, New York have uh, several women playing on their team. So we don't have women's only teams, although it would be kind of cool to put together an all-star team. They'd probably beat a few of the men's teams as well. (laughs) Um, They're very talented. And yeah, we're, we're always welcome. We we welcome female players. Unfortunately there's just not enough interest to put together a full team.
0: Yeah. For participants, where do you get your equipment? Now I know, you're not, we're certainly at the show here, not recommending that listeners just go off and buy a bunch of vintage baseball stuff without consulting with an organization first. But where do you guys get your equipment these days?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. We actually, we get our baseball bats through RG Johnson, which is here in Denmark, Maine. And uh, they, they're actually one of the original baseball bat producers in the country. We also get baseball bats through Bulldog Bats out of Connecticut. He's a, he's a guy that's been playing vintage baseball for several decades he knows the the game so whenever we go to festivals he's always there and we buy we buy bats from them our uniforms we get exclusively through a company called KNP weaver who does a lot of uh, uh 19 they do a lot of 19th century uh era baseball uniforms and other uniforms for other sports as well and and just other types of attire we get is our there hat a, yeah, sorry.
0: i was going to ask is there a uh, an industry that's grown up of, of sort of folks who who cater to these clubs, like maybe even period period foods and other sort of vending goods that go along at these
1: public events. Whenever we go to festivals outside of the state of Maine, and actually even in the state of Maine, you oftentimes do see food vendors that I don't know, like ice cream vendors, dog vendor, people that, you know, are regularly associated with baseball and maybe old timey baseball. They'll show up for sure. I do want to say, you know, there is a market out there for vintage baseball. There are so many teams now. When I started playing in 2006, nationally, maybe I would say it's doubled or tripled the amount of teams that exist now. It's become a bit of a hipster sport. I hate to use that term, but reality is reality. Well, uh, and
0: there's the facial hair and the outfits.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a, a cool thing to do, I guess. I just want to say I was doing it before it was cool. I just want to throw Fair. it. Fair. I, 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 <laughs> t- I
0: take your word for it.
1: So considering the
0: growth, where do you personally see yourself and, and your organization in this constellation of other public history organizations in, in Maine and wider New England? Like, where do you fit into to this, this public history tapestry?
1: So you mean like in regards to all reenacting and all history? Um... Yeah,
0: like, our, exactly. So we have in terms of, yeah, where, where do you see your
1: place in public education? Whew. I mean, it's hard for me to talk talk about those sorts of things, but I I think that people are intrigued by baseball. It's a sport. It's it's a it's a lot of fun. Um, we we've played in front of crowds of you know fifteen hundred people. You know, I give lectures about the history of baseball to at schools and museums and historical societies and. People love it. They eat it up. I mean, how can you not? You know, with everything that's going on with modern sports and big money, I know it's kind of a cliche, but people really do like to come out and, and they like the pace of vintage baseball. They like the feel of it. It's a fast paced game. It's actually very entertaining to watch. You've been to a game. You saw it, what have. it was like, it's, it's, it's got a lot of appeal.
0: So speaking of the, the gameplay, how is Deergo doing this season? I know it's a truncated season thanks to COVID.
1: We have not played a single game and it's, oh, it's very sad. I was uh,
0: misled based on the, the websites. Well, I know the Providence Grays have played.
1: Oh yeah. Providence has played a lot of games. The Connecticut Bulldogs have played, or I guess the Hartford baseball club, they've changed their name, but they've played a lot of games. The New York teams get to play a lot of games because they've been, their States have been cleared for the most part right. at most of our opponents most of the players that we play against live in Massachusetts and Maine still has restrictions (laughs) against uh, people from Massachusetts. So the, the idea of getting a game together with people who have either a tested, gotten tests for COVID-19 or have quarantined for two weeks in the state of Maine, it's just not, it's not realistic. We do have games though, against Connecticut coming up. Ah, When Uh, are these? We we have a game. <laughs> of course, we're we're scheduled to play. I say coming up. We have a game against Connecticut in October, and that's scheduled to be in Massachusetts. We'll probably have to change where we play that game based on the status of COVID nineteen. Uh, it's just it's presented such a challenge for us, and uh, it's it's truly upsetting because our guys are ready to play. I know the general public wants to see us play. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a tough year.
0: So speaking of your team, has Dirigo been building a powerful team in the past few years? How does it rank in terms of the league or the, well, at least the neighboring teams?
1: We're middle of the pack. You know, the teams like the Providence Grays are real powerhouses. They technically don't even play in our, I guess, if you were to divide it up into eras, they don't necessarily play in our era. They play an 1880s version, which is overhand. We do play them. We play them in eighteen sixties and in eighteen eighties from time to time. They're an excellent, excellent team. No, we, we mostly play teams locally and we're you know, we're decent. We go to festivals and we'll go five hundred or we'll win more sometimes, we'll lose more sometimes. We're just an average team.
0: Okay. Looking ahead to brighter days, do you see other other changes or innovations? Lying ahead for the sport of vintage baseball?
1: Something that has really evolved in the game is the concept of a festival. We never played in a festival until 2015 as a club. Uh, we went to the Gettysburg National Baseball Festival. They have five teams. I'm sorry, they have five fields. They get like 24 teams. And you just play a round rob, and each team plays around four games. And that was eye opening. That was it was incredible for us to see teams from all around the country, to see some really skilled teams, to see the, the game called correctly, to see people's rules, interpretations. You know, these festivals really foster a sense of accuracy because you're, you're the pressure is on to present as accurately as possible depending on where you're playing. You see bigger crowds. Yeah, it's just a lot more pressure, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, you get to travel. So the, I think the future of vintage baseball is mostly going to be a few games here and there, and then, and then hosting festivals like we do at the New England Vintage Baseball Festival every June in Cornish, Maine, Excellent. And, then tra- and then traveling to other festivals.
0: Now, speaking of traveling and the audiences, are there period groupies of Deerigo and other ball clubs? Like, Do you get significant numbers of fans and supporters at these events who are also dressed very Natalie and period-appropriate
1: attire? Well, I was going to say yes until you said a significant number. Uh, <laughs> Fair. We, we have, uh, from time to time, we do have re- reenactors show up, and that's always a pleasure. It, it's a great uh, look. It actually used to be more common in our earlier days of the club. I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I could flip the script and ask you what what's going on with the reenacting world outside of vintage baseball. I'm kind of bogged down in my own
0: right uh, sphere. But I um, mean, I I am very, quite honestly. I'm quite removed from Civil War reenacting now. Like I said, for me, there was uh, a decision point around the time I was graduating high school as I learned more of the history that quite honestly, I I think it's a somewhat different situation where the politics of doing the public facing side of the Civil War reenacting in a way that was educational and wouldn't just horribly scar children didn't seem to work. I mean, I I don't know what you're supposed to do And I I don't agree with the way that most Confederate units handled themselves. And quite frankly, there was a lot of racism among them uh, and a lot of lost cause mentality. And so I don't see how, for example, audience members of color can go touring around in a authentic Confederate encampment at a civil war event without either being lied to or horribly abused. And so there were a number of other problems like that, that made me decide that it just, it wasn't for me. And I'm not. Going to cast aspersions and say that you know every every single Civil War living history organization is terrible or something like that. Only that I have some real problems. The more I learned about American history, with how to to best conduct that hobby,
1: and those are yeah, and those are questions that need to be answered going forward. Yeah. Uh, I so yeah, I mean, I think I think you do see the numbers in those in those reenacting groups. I know uh, are, are not as high as they used to be. So. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what the future is with that? Right. I don't see vintage baseball slowing down, which is really interesting.
0: Nor should it. And those, you know, those concerns that I addressed, of course, with how some, some Confederate regiment just presenting itself, like we've discussed, you know, earlier here. Vintage baseball can be both accurate and also inclusive, which is a a, a really great thing, and sometimes all too rare, right? In some of these, some of these living history organization. It's yeah. so nice yeah. when you, you don't have to choose between the two, Yeah, which is always fun. So speaking of including folks, uh, if listeners are interested in getting involved and maybe uh, thinking about joining a vintage baseball club, where might they look and where should they start?
1: Well, if this, if this is a mainly history podcast, I believe, it is. please go to DerigoBaseball.org. And uh, get in touch with us so we have contact information. If you're not in the state of Maine, if you're in other parts of the country, go to the Vintage Baseball Organization website, vba.org. Find out where your local team is. And uh, most of them have uh, websites listed. And and get involved. It's so much fun. Teams are always looking for players. Derigo is always looking for players. We, We love to bring on new players, new life. It's always good when you're running an organization to have new life injected into, and new energy injected into the, into the program, so. And I should interject
0: that, that despite my earlier statement of why I left the, the Civil War side of things, on the, the organizations are overwhelmingly welcome to interested newcomers, and so reaching out, reaching out to these kinds of things is something that people shouldn't be hesitant about doing.
1: Right, and, and, and though there is a certain financial commitment especially I think in civil war reenacting we yes. at Jericho baseball try to make it as affordable as possible for everybody. We have resources available for people. So a don't park,
0: no pun intended. What would the, what would the startup cost be to, to get a vintage uniform?
1: If you were a first year player, we would provide a uniform for you. We would not make you pay for a uniform. Just show up with, with a pair of cleats a pair of blue dress pants and you're ready to go. And then after that, we can discuss numbers. (laughs) Great. Great.
0: So then even if folks who perhaps are not ready to, to don your, your uniform quite yet, but they want to go out to events, where can people stay up to date on all of the vintage baseball events, especially of course, featuring Deergo.
1: That's difficult. Um, You know, teams are not, uh, I mean, I guess you can start following teams on social media, Facebook, Instagram, our websites. I try to keep my website as up to date as possible. It it has been a challenge this summer with the shuffling of the schedule. So yeah, just if you have a local team, try to find them on Facebook or Instagram, give them a follow. Most of them are posting schedules and updates on that and check your local newspapers because games are popping up all over the place.
0: Great. Great. And I know the, the VBBA website does have a pretty hefty list of different teams listed by state. Yeah, that's so right. That is one platform people can start with.
1: Yeah, and they, they don't even actually have all the teams that exist in the country. Not all wow. teams that are, are with the VBBA. So uh, you never know. Just, you know, search, search uh, try a Google search of vintage baseball in your state and, and you're sure to find things. Great. What are you up to, historically, that you are excited about these days? Me as a person or the Diargo B- Baseball Club? You can choose either. Well, the mound I... is yours. <laughs> right now, uh, Diargo Baseball Club and, and, and me personal, we are, we are in a real fight to get Doc Adams uh, inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame national baseball hall of fame okay. and it's, it's a tough fight because so why should doc adams be inducted into the baseball hall of fame well it's a no-brainer he he was a catalyst for so much of the the development of our game he was actually a fine player for his time played for the new york knickerbocker club or the knickerbocker baseball club of new york I, like i said he invented the shortstop position you know, if, the, if that alone isn't enough, uh, you know, help set the 90-foot base path, helped put nine players on each side of the field, just really revolutionized the sport. And he's kind of been left out of the picture because historically, for whatever reason, the Baseball Hall of Fame and, and the founders of baseball have just latched on to the myth, the absolute myth of Doubleday and uh, Cartwright. And so we really would like to have Chadwick and, and Doc Adams and, and the other actual fathers of baseball take their rightful place in history.
0: Okay, so we have a plug for Doc Adams, fair enough. Is there Absolutely. progress on this campaign?
1: Yeah, I, we are working really hard. His uh, great, believe it or not, his great granddaughter is, uh, is a huge advocate and she's worked really hard for years to get the Baseball Hall of Fame to induct uh, Doc Adams. And this year is the next chance for them to vote him in. And uh, we're really hoping that it happens. Well, well here's hoping.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jake, for coming on Mainly History Today to talk with us a bit about Deergo Vintage Baseball Club. Hopefully we will see you out on the field very soon. Yes, we hope so. And thank you so much. Thank you. That's our show. Join us next time as we shamelessly take advantage of massive interest in the post office and speak with Rebecca Brenner Graham about another time when mail delivery became the center of a political firestorm in this case surrounding the campaign to end Sunday mail delivery and how different religious groups engaged with this controversy over the boundaries of church and state. As you wait for episode two, follow us on Twitter, at Mainly History, to be kept up to date on our next episodes. We're not on Facebook yet because I don't have time for that these days. We hope you join us next time because when it comes to regional history podcasts, We want to be your main squeeze. See you soon.